Renee, hi, what's up? Who knows here? You never really know what goes on around here. I wish you were here with me right now. I miss you so much. I think you are so cute. I love you so much. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it. I will. My friends love your picture. They think you're cute. Thanks for the chain and the aftershave. I love them. I didn't get into any trouble when I went over to your house on Tuesday. Though I wished you would have let me stay because I missed you so much. If Danielle thinks she's so tough, then she isn't normal. She said she doesn't cry when she gets hurt. That's the biggest fucking lie I have ever heard because all normal people have to cry every once in a while. I love you, Renee. Don't worry about our age difference because when I was listening to the radio, I heard this guy talking about his girlfriend being 14 when he was 19. I will never forget about you. I promise, I swear on the Holy Bible. I wasn't mad when you tore up your picture at the skating rink. I was just a little PO'd. Don't worry about it. I still love you. P.S. Sorry about the handwriting. P.S.S. I miss you so much. P.S.S.S. I'm so happy that we met. P.S.S.S.S.S. I won't ever run away with another girl unless you run away with another guy. P.S.S.S.S.S.S.S.S.S. See you soon. This letter to Renee was signed by Rick, or Rich. It's difficult to tell from the handwriting. It was part of the evidence recovered by the police from the crime scene. Who was this person? What was his relationship to Renee? It ended up being one more rabbit hole that no one went too far down, as far as we could tell. But it brings up a larger question. If a letter like this, clearly indicating visits to the house, clearly indicating some kind of a relationship, at least romantic in one direction, between Renee and an older male, was just a footnote in the investigation. What was going on in Renee and Danielle's lives at the time of the crime? Because of Renee Lemieux's friendship with Hope, Ronald's stepdaughter, Lisa got to know Renee. My first encounter with Renee was when my dad had asked me to uh, come to a peewee football game with him because he said Renee was going to come to that uh, game. So he said, next week, you um, come with us. So I said, sure. And he goes, I really want you to meet this Renee. She is so funny. She reminds me so much about you. And um, I said, okay, and now I'll go. So they came and picked me up and we get, I get in the car and we're headed towards the peewee football game. And my dad introduces, hey, Renee, this is my daughter, Lisa. And she's like, hi. She was maybe a little shy. Anyway, we go to the peewee football game. We leave the peewee football game. We end up going to Mama's Pizza. And uh, she's being a little silly at it there. I can't remember what it was, but my dad goes, see, see, she reminds me so much of, of you. Lisa had less interaction with Renee's older sister, Danielle, but one memory in particular has stayed with her. I drove up and saw Danielle sitting on the front porch, so I decided to go out on the front porch. And this is like, um, you know, a week or two before the murders. So I go out and introduce myself to her, and I said, you know, um, my parents are divorced also. I know it's hard. But if you ever need anybody to talk to, I'll be happy to give you my number and you can call me anytime you want. 
And uh, so I happened to like look over at her and I saw there was hickey on her neck. And I said, hey, you know, I noticed the hickey on your neck. I said, you know, you shouldn't let boys put hickeys on your neck. And she adamantly told me, I did not let anybody put a hickey on my neck. These two boys held me down. They wanted to make my boyfriend jealous and they put the hickey on my neck. And that was, you know, given to Detective Ford and it was told to the defense attorneys. Both Dallas Magazine and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported that Renee and Danielle's mother, Joanne Lemieux, worked a lot. Double shifts, weekends, at times early mornings until late at night. And consequently, that her daughters, at the ages of 14 and 12, were often unsupervised. Some of Danielle's diary entries were part of the state's evidence shared with the defense. Many of her diary entries sound like a normal 14-year-old girl. For example, in one entry she writes, I like Craig so much, but I don't think he likes me. In another, Danielle writes, I'm going to run away tonight. Beneath it, a line is drawn. And in what appears to be separate writing, Danielle mentions, I never did run away. Danielle cataloged her days, even when nothing much happened, specifically writing diary entries repeatedly where she literally wrote, nothing happened that day. But there are also entries that reinforce Danielle's unusual amount of solitary freedom for a 14-year-old girl like an entry dated April 6th that reads, Today was great. I went to the lake with David, then he took me cruising Cooper. That night, one guy came up to the car and asked what I wanted. Then I went to a truck behind me and talked to them for a while. But Danielle and Renee wouldn't be alone at the time of this crime. Two days before the murders, Joanne let John Bradley, whom she knew from her church, come live with her and the girls. And by December 20th, 1985, Ronald Tromboli would be arrested for the murder of John, Danielle, and Renee. But the path from the triple murder occurring to Ronald being arrested for the triple murder was definitely not a straight line. So the FBI wanted to do the surveillance to put pressure on him to, well, they were suggesting to the Arlington Police Department to do the surveillance to see if you can get him to crack and confess. The DA's office wanted to do a grand jury, call a grand jury with all the friends and family to put pressure on him to confess. Well, they did the FBI tactic first. It lasted maybe two weeks. Two and no. a half weeks, really? maybe three weeks like in forever. September of 85. And that's when they arrested him. They, For the DWI. Yeah, they couldn't, none of this was working. He wasn't confessing. He wasn't breaking down. He wasn't doing any of this, you know, what they wanted him to do. So they found out that he had a warrant out for his arrest for a parole, for a, uh, what do they call it? A, uh, violation probation violation for a DWI so they used that to arrest him the surveillance on Ronald Trimboli would come to an end because there would no longer be any need to surveil him once he was in police custody they grab Ron from the from the recliner pull him up say you're under arrest and he's like for what and he yeah. and the cop goes you, you know, know what? what you know what you know what and, and then just arrested him which is so weird Arlington arrested him. This doesn't happen for a Dallas DWI. DWI violation probation. I mean, it's not a normal thing to do. And they drove them to drove him to Dallas. 
or or had Dallas come and pick him up. That's two months before they charged him for murder. He had a outstanding warrant on that DWI, and he also had a theft by check, two charges, and that's that's how the surveillance ended. He stayed in jail for two months. Nobody, your dad, your grandfather wouldn't bail him out. He stayed locked up for almost two months, and they he got out. I think about a week before Christmas. Yeah. The family saying, you know, you need to get him out of jail. And he already missed that Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, they were transferring him from Dallas County to Tarrant County, playing these games. So they finally bailed him out, I think, two weeks before Christmas. Me and DC and my grandmother weighed on my grandfather to cough up some money and bail out his son and that we wanted him home for Christmas. So my grandfather agreed to do so. Uh, My father came home. But Ronald Trimboli's return to his family would be short-lived. And he was there for maybe, what, three, four days. And then I went to work. My grandmother called me at work. She said, Lisa, I need you to come home right away after work. And I said, okay, what's going on? And she said, your father has been arrested. And I said, oh, thinking real quick. And then I asked, for what? And she said, your father's been arrested for the murders, and I need you to come right home. Well, he was in the kitchen, and he was getting ready to, um, he was saying he was shucking clams and getting ready to make dinner. And that was it. Lisa was 19 when Ronald was arrested. The ripple effect of Ronald's arrest would reverberate for the rest of his daughter Lisa's life, starting with a call from her boss. Uh, Well, I ended up losing my job over it. He called me on the phone and he said, "Um, Lisa, I'm gonna have to let you go right now. The situation with your father is, is just not going to be good for the company. And you'll be distracted. And I just think it's best that we just separate our ways. Lisa and her mother, Ronald's first wife, didn't discuss the situation too much. But her mother did say one thing pointedly to Lisa. She said to me, and this is the only thing that we talked about, she just said, your father did not commit that crime. Your father would never hurt children. Children were birthdays and Christmas to him. I said, okay. And that was really the end of it. Even interactions with police unrelated to this crime would somehow circle back to Ronald. When there was a shooting near where Lisa lived, a detective asked to speak to her, and according to Lisa, said, He says, your dad has three strikes against him. And I said, what does that mean? And he says, one, he's Italian, two, he's Catholic, and three, he's a Yankee. Wow. And that's what I said. That's exactly what I said as I turned and looked at the sunset. As Lisa recalls, it even affected how she was treated when she went to the hospital to give birth to her first child before the first trial began. When I got there, I told them my name. And... The next thing I know, I just got wheeled down to a room that 
had a bed on the floor, and that was it, and a door that closed and locked. <laughs> no windows, no medical equipment in there, nothing. And I was left there for nine hours. And, and I know that because there was a clock on the wall, so I watched it. And I was in so much pain, nobody checked on me. Nobody brought me a glass of water. Nobody asked me if I needed anything. I didn't even realize because the pain was so enormous. It started from my back. And then, and a lot of women will understand this. I had back labor, so the labor would start in my back and then go to my front. So there was never ending. There was no rest for nine hours. Ronald would meet his grandson in the courtroom. I did show up with my mom in D.C. on the first day, and um, I had my son with me because I didn't have anybody to watch him that day. And I thought I could bring him in the courtroom. Why I thought I could do that, I don't know, young. And uh, They made you take him out? Yeah, I walked in, and I held him up. My dad turned around, I held him up and showed my dad, because my dad hasn't seen him. I haven't taken him up. I had visited my father. He smiled. He smiled, and then the judge told me I had to leave. Judge Cook said I have to take the baby out. So we left. In transcripts of the first trial, with the jury out of the room, Ronald's attorney, Carl Mallory, pleaded with the judge to allow in evidence of the two alternate suspects. Mallory's argument was that the jury needed to know there were other people out there, like Dennis Mason, with motive to commit this crime and that from Mallory's perspective, Ronald Tromboli was singled out and all other leads ignored or not followed up on properly, and that they had a right to show the jury that. But Bob Gill, prosecutor for the state, argued that it was irrelevant because too much time had passed prior to the crime. There is a state of mind exception to the hearsay rule, but due to time passing, Gill argued it wasn't applicable in this case. We have John Bradley's statement which indicates his fear that Dennis Mason might try to kill him, dated October 5th, 1984. The murders happened on June 17th, 1985, so about eight months later. The argument between the two men can be best summed up by this exchange from page 627 of the first trial's transcript, where the defense attorney, Carl Mallory, asks, how can I cross-examine effectively with my hands tied behind me? And prosecutor Bob Gill replies, I don't know how we can cross-examine with hearsay. We called and emailed Bob Gale's office to see if he wanted to be interviewed for this podcast, but got no response. Obviously, Mallory felt this was important because he made a point to say on the record, quote, I am precluded from questioning him about the statement John Bradley gave to the Midlothian Police Department, wherein he said that he was in fear of his life and Dennis had threatened to kill him. The judge's answer? Exactly. The him Mallory was referring to was Detective Ford. So my first assignment was was the Middleothian investigation. And uh, the reason that came up was that John Bradley was acquainted with, with several of, of the possible suspects uh, in the Middleothian case and also acquainted with the deceased in the, the Middleothian case. And so I was assigned initially to work on, on that end of the case. John Bradley had already uh, been interviewed by a Middleothian detective at that time, Detective Blake. 
and had given Detective Flake a statement uh, in which John Bradley uh, had overheard some conversation, some hearsay conversation about several individuals. Uh, and this, this conversation indicated that perhaps uh, one of the individuals or more than one of the individuals knew something about who killed uh, Jimmy McCork, the Middle Othian victim. So Detective Lake uh, contacted the Arlington Police Department and, and provided his information. And I think as well, there were some associates of uh, John Bradley that we talked to who told, gave us the same information. At any rate, we knew that that was one particular lead we needed to investigate. But as Detective Ford told us earlier, McCourt's case wasn't solved. And ultimately it was decided that all of this was just hearsay and double hearsay and uh, dope talk, rabbit trails as we like to call it. Nonetheless, it naturally came up in questions directed to Detective Ford on the stand, leading the judge to reprimand Ronald's attorneys to stay away from the Midlothian case. Carl Mallory replied that yes, he wouldn't even say the word. The judge told him, well, I don't want you to dance around it either. Carl Mallory said, judge, Dancing is allowed. Dennis Mason had a potential motive, as did Eric, the other alternate suspect we mentioned last time. But what could have been Ronald Tremboli's motive? We were able to find some people that saw what uh, led us to believe that Tremboli had had, had an, uh, an obsession for Danielle even several years before. Uh, one particular incident, someone tells us that uh, while sitting around at the swimming pool that uh, Danielle was seen sitting in, in Tremboli's lap. And the person that was giving us this information uh, said that the way it appeared, it did not appear appropriate and so forth. Just some inappropriate observations by uh, neighbors they were acquainted with both of them. But, uh, the kind of little thing, you know, when, when a red flag comes up, like we were talking about earlier, it didn't appear to be a fatherly type thing. That was another really weird thing, that DC was asked about if they had normal sex, and so was my mom. Was the sex normal? Right. That was part of the investigation. Right. Where they found your dad was had a normal sex life. Right, right. So... They were trying to make him out to be some kind of sexual pervert. Deviant. Deviant. Yeah. They, they were hoping something... Yeah, would fit their version of what they thought. Yeah. But nobody did. Uh, none, none of the women, uh, not that they knew of, that they can be in contact with, told him that they were so, any... any that, any weird sex. Ultimately, the case would be made that Ronald Tromboli was infatuated with Danielle sexually. This would be presented by prosecutors as his motive. You might notice nothing about a creepy older neighbor was mentioned in Danielle's diary entries we quoted earlier. It stands to reason if he was mentioned anywhere in her diaries, the prosecution would have been sure to use that at trial. Danielle wrote about things like feuds with friends, sexual details of her romantic relationship, getting into arguments with her mother. She did not appear to be self-censoring her diary entries. If Ronald Trimboli had behaved inappropriately around Danielle, wouldn't she have mentioned it in one of her diaries? Um, Danielle had a, a diary that, that she put 
everything in. An Arlington Police Department Detective Division investigative report dated August 13th of 1985 notes that Danielle had seen a psychologist and that when the police contacted Danielle's psychologist, she advised that at no time during the interview did Danielle ever mention there was an older man she was involved with or that she was involved with anyone else other than a boyfriend. And she further stated that Danielle didn't express any type of fears or consternation as a result of any other individual, particularly Ronald Tromboli. The last word on that report is Atwell. I asked you, Atwell, about Ronald's motive. For, for you, was that your theory of his motive? Was that it was sexual in nature? Well, it would, it, to me, it would seem obvious, but uh, you never know. Um, sometimes you may have the sexual assault there, but it was, it's just secondary you know, to the real, you know, to the motive of wanting to have power and control and to uh, control these people completely and to uh, cause, inflict as much pain and, and fear, terror as they possibly can. It's tough not to wonder. With Dennis Mason, you have a victim, John Bradley, explicitly saying he's afraid Dennis is going to kill him. But that situation is dismissed as hearsay and dope talk, as Detective Ford said, and the jury is not allowed to hear about it as shown in transcripts from the first trial. Yet with Ronald Tromboli, a few observations from neighbors are enough to conclusively decide he has a sexual obsession with Danielle that motivated a triple murder. Notice, Detective Ford isn't saying someone saw Ronald try to kiss Danielle or anything anywhere near as significant as that. In fact, he's being quite vague there about literally what occurred. By his own description, even if true, these are little interactions. What does that mean exactly? What, what are we talking about? We'll learn more about the specific details of the state's case as it applies to this point in the trial testimony to come. But ultimately, at least as it applied to the first trial, it would all be a moot point because the first trial would come to an abrupt end. For District Attorney Sharon Wilson, the term mistrial was an inner office joke. The Dallas Morning News reported that on the desk of Sharon Wilson, the highest ranking woman in the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office there was a blue nameplate that read Miss Trial, and then pasted to that nameplate was a piece of paper with the Roman numeral three, an inner office joke. Even Sharon, the district attorney, was quoted in this article as saying, the more heinous the crime, the more that person deserves a good lawyer, and adding, it's not necessarily who's guilty or innocent who goes to jail or goes free, it's usually the person with the best lawyer. Sharon was described as a competitor, tenacious and single-minded at times in the article, and also admitted she noticed that working on so many gruesome cases had made her less sensitive to victims. She also said she had previously dismissed three cases where she felt they had the wrong person on trial, saying, if I can't convince myself that the person is guilty, then I just couldn't carry through. We tried to reach Sharon to interview her for this podcast, but she retired last year, and an interview request passed along to Sharon through the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office was not replied to. The year Sharon worked on Ronald Trimboli's first trial, her record as a district attorney was 60 felony cases with only two not guilty verdicts. But that same year, three of her four capital murder cases ended in a mistrial, including Ronald Trimboli's. Why did Ronald Trimboli's first trial end in a mistrial? So right when they got back from lunch, they were gonna show the crime scene videotape. This one particular juror didn't get back in time. They start the videotape they're viewing the videotape and two of the aunts um, decided that they didn't want to see it 
John Bradley's aunt and Danielle's aunt. And I think it was um, Sharon Wilson had told them that they were going to show the video and they may not want to um, watch it. So they decided they didn't want to watch it and they sat outside the door of the courtroom, which where the jury can go in and out of also and be seen. They can be seen by the jury and everything. And this juror returns. They proceed to tell him, which this is what really gets me, is they proceed to tell him that they're about to watch the crime scene videotape. And he says, yeah, I'm one of the jurors, and I hope that I can be fair having a teenage daughter myself. So he's talking to the two aunts. Well, the they juror. talked to him first, and he has a juror badge, so they shouldn't even said anything to him. They weren't supposed to talk to him on top of the fact that he's not supposed to engage in conversation about his feelings about the case, which he did. And then these two aunts convey that over to Sharon. Hey, Sharon, we talked to this juror and he said that he, he hopes he can be fair because he has a daughter. Why that conversation between the aunts and Sharon came up and why Sharon decided at that particular point to tell the judge, knowing that the judge would then call a mistrial. The trials of Ronald Tromboli had only just begun. On the next episode, Ronald gets a full trial, his second trial, but a change of venue only increases the odds stacked against him. A woman in the neighborhood claims she saw Ronald Tromboli interacting with Danielle in an awkward, inappropriate way, a few weeks before the murders, supporting the prosecution's characterization of Ronald as a sexual deviant. Ronald's fingerprints in the utility room where John Bradley's body was found are argued by the prosecution to be damning evidence. Despite this, and everything else, when the jury for the second trial compiled their votes, they at first overwhelmingly favored acquittal. Why did the jury initially, by a wide margin, tilt towards finding Ronald Tromboli innocent of this crime? We'll find out in the next episode. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.